Welcome to the Teachers Podcast in association with Classroom Secrets, the podcast that's here to help teachers. Whether it's discussing the latest issues in education or sharing top tips for use in the classroom, if you work in education or want to know more about the sector, then this is the podcast for you. Now, please welcome your host, former teacher, life work balance advocate and successful business owner, Claire Riley. Hi everyone and thank you for listening. This episode is a bit different. We've had a number of people contact us about the jargon used in education, so we thought it would be a good idea to talk through some of that terminology used in the different phases. If you're a teacher, it's still useful to you for these reasons. You may have a child in a year group that you are not familiar with, especially if you have a child in early years but teaching year six, or you have a child in year five but you still teach in year one. There are points when we discuss some of the simplest terms And you may feel that everyone has come across them, but we wanted to include them as we actually talk about how we teach or use it in that particular phase as well, which is very useful for parents. The plan is to possibly create some YouTube tutorials on the different concepts for the YouTube channel, so let me know if that would be helpful too. Today I'm joined by four members of the Classroom Secrets team who have a wealth of teaching knowledge between them in each area and they're all talking about a different phase, early years, key stage one, lower key stage two and upper key stage two. So let's get to the first interview for the early years foundation stage with our EYFS year group manager, Victoria Clay. So Victoria, thank you for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So obviously we're all uh, remote at the moment and and as part of this episode I'm interviewing uh, four experts at Classroom Secrets. So I've interviewed Betty for the 5-6 and you're going to be talking to us about EYFS. Um, So first of all, do you want to give us a little backstory about your experience in, in EYFS? Um, I will do, yes. So I trained to be a teacher through um, a PGCE. I actually trained in general primary. Um, EYFS wasn't really on my radar, which always surprises a lot of people. Mm. Um, So I trained in general and then started off on supply. Um, We moved at the time, so I kind of missed deadlines for schools and got some experience in different year groups. And then I was offered a maternity cover in EYFS and I took it. I knew I preferred teaching a younger age range um, and I worked with an amazing team and probably a few weeks in I knew that EYFS was where I wanted to really develop and stay in teaching. So close to 10 years later um, I stayed in EYFS. I worked in three different schools, quite different schools um, and also led three different EYFS settings. Um, one did have a nursery attached as well and really just grew a love and passion for early years and just watching children develop during that time. Um, I did leave teaching which was a really hard decision but that came with having my own two children um, who are now two and three. Um, I suppose I just felt with the increasing demands of the job, not the actual teaching part, spending time with children and teaching them in class was I suppose the easiest part of the job but with the demands of the rest of it I felt too torn between trying to be a good teacher and a good mum and so then I 
left um, and ended up at Classroom Secrets, where I started as a resource creator, quickly went to leading <laughs> EYFS, mm-hmm. um, and and are hoping to continue developing EYFS within Classroom Secrets because it's quite new. Um, we are still developing it, but I hope I can bring my experience into the job um, to keep developing it there. So that's just yes. a little bit about me. <laughs> yes, thank you. And an EYFS, like you say, is quite new um, for Classroom Secrets, but we've got a lot of um, a lot of resources now which have been carefully thought out. We have, and we just want to keep building on that and just really providing the best that we can. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Right, okay. So we're going to jump straight into the terminology. Um, so as part of this, you know, this is mainly for parents. Um, if you have children who are in our EYFS, so first of all, what is EYFS actually? Um, so EYFS in the most basic form stands for Early Years Foundation Stage. Um, and it refers to the time of development of a child from birth right the way through to five. Um, you might hear the phrase more associated with reception in a school, um, but it does cover that whole age range from birth to five. Thank you. Um, so obviously we both have children in EYFS <laughs> right now. <laughs> we do. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to learning lots from you. Um, okay, so I've got so many more <laughs> um, sort of terms that are used that, that could be confusing. Um, so really, if, if your children are school age, then we're talking nursery and reception, aren't we? Um, yes. For this, for, for this little slot. Um, yes. Okay. So acronyms, teachers love acronyms. Um, other people yes. don't love them as much as teachers and have no idea <laughs> what they mean. Um, even now, I think Ed's been at Classroom Secrets like full time, 18 months, but like obviously he's been with the company seven years, just like me. He still doesn't know what the acronyms are. And he's like, what is, what is that? Um, so it is important, I think, to kind of uh, shine a light on what they are. So... This acronym, ELG, what's that? Um, So ELG stands for Early Learning Goals. So at the end of reception, children are assessed against 17 early learning goal statements. Um, And as the teacher, you will assess a child to say if they are working towards an early learning goal statement. So that would be emerging, um, whether they have achieved an early learning goal statement, which would be expected, or whether they have gone beyond um, so a child would be, have exceeded those statements. Thank you. Um, just another question, actually. If so, there are there are parents at home now with children um, in EYFS um, like us. I know actually. So Hattie's teacher actually does send the things through, but I know that not every parent will be getting that. If you had to tell them the most important thing that they should know, what would that be? In terms of EYFS in general or linked to the other learning goals? Um, just EYFS in general, like if, you know, if they're a parent at home and they're worried about having, um, about the child now being at home, because at the end of the day, they sent the child to school for a reason um, because they did have the option to keep them at home. What, what kind of important pieces of knowledge or important things that you feel like they need to know should be um, Okay, so I would start with saying, please don't worry and don't overthink this time. It's 
a really unusual time for everybody and I think it could be quite easy to worry during this time, worry about learning they might be missing in school, worry about learning they might be missing in nursery. If you're like me, um, Esme is coming up to school age, so she is three, she will be one of the younger um, children in class, but she will be starting school in September. Um, so it could become a time that you could quite easily worry, she might not get a transition into school, she might have a few months not being at nursery, she's being at home. Um, so I think one of the most important things you can do is to be there for your child. Remember, you may have a teaching background. You might be like me, who has worked in early years, so you feel more comfortable. Um, but if you're not, you, you don't suddenly become a teacher overnight and it doesn't become suddenly in your nature to know how to teach a younger child and what to do. Um, I think for me, it's kind of important to remember what time is during early years and for me during that time you're building foundations in children so you're building foundations that will carry them through the rest of their their years whether that's talking about academic skills or personal skills so during this time kind of your role at home in educating your child should still be very focused on building and developing them as a whole and not getting too caught up in worrying about what you think they should be doing and what you think they should be doing for when they start school and thinking too much of well they need to be writing the name and they need to be writing this and they need to know mm. 22 sounds and they need to know numbers I think sometimes it can be overlooked what learning looks like in early years often you know I might hear phrases like real learning starts in year one um, in early years you just play and children aren't really doing much it's more of a transition um, but actually during this time children will continually and are constantly learning so as a parent at home in this situation I'd, I'd advise to really look and, and just remember how important conversations that you're having are and how important spending time with them is and I'm probably gearing more towards being in the position of leading into school. It's trying not to overthink the academic side and actually thinking, well, what can I do to keep developing? For me, learning can be everywhere. It can be kind of adult-led. It can be adult-focused, which is being shown brilliantly, by the way, by you and Helen and Lee, <laughs> of how, as an adult, you can set up activities for young children to do. Um, but I think it's important to remember that learning can happen anywhere at any time if you look for it and if you look for the opportunities. Um, take, for example, we went out for a walk um, the other day. We took our one time of exercise that we could go out and some children had done a rainbow hunt on our walk and Esme spotted the sign saying, find 10 rainbows now. I'd set out to just go on a walk, get some fresh air, but already she'd show me, oh, she knows the number 10. So again, I thought, let's go and look for these rainbows. Not thinking anything of it. By the end of the walk, we've been talking about one more than, one less than. We'd found yeah. five rainbows. If we find one more, she's got six. And that all came from just using that opportunity. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important to remember and what a lot of, EYFX practitioners will do day in day out is 
learning doesn't always need to be set up and it doesn't always need to be thought out where you think I have this outcome at the end. Actually, sometimes you can step back and children will naturally lead you into mm -hmm. learning and you can follow that through with questions and, and not where you're bombarding a child of, tell me this, tell me this, but just more responding to what they're saying with a question. Oh, so we have, and what if we go and find two more rainbows? What could that be? Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter if the answer you're wrong, because then again, you've got another avenue to explore. And so it's, for me, it's finding learning in, in your everyday life and not overlooking the more simple things um, because learning is everywhere. And if you kind of immerse yourself in a child's learning, then it's quite a magical place to be, which is why I never left early years. <laughs> yeah. And I also think at that age, you know, I know um, you've kind of said, oh, they only play in early years. And obviously they don't, but they do do a lot of learning through play. And um, I think just, just these last few days has actually been the Easter holidays. And I did kind of toy with the idea of, oh, do I still kind of do the things I've been doing? And I was like, no, because I need a break. Um, but what's been really nice is um, I've seen Hattie's play develop in that time because she's clearly bored. Um, and it <laughs> reminds me of when I was a child and the kind of play I did, like she's doing a lot of imagination stuff. Like she's building dens all the time, putting the backpack on, going on an adventure in the house. Um, and I, I was really pleased to see that um, and, and the learning that she's doing through that and then kind of um, playing out what she's sort of been learning um, through that. And I think, yeah, actually, that is a really good opportunity because normally we probably wouldn't have been in the house long enough for her to be able to do that yeah I think that's it I think it's I mean we were just talking about before the positives that can come from this and and your first thought is wow I'm going to be at home with a two and a three-year-old and juggling work yeah. but actually that you get time that you may not have had before and yeah. you learn what your children can do and yeah. You might not have seen that if they were at nursery during the day or if they were at school. And I am a, you know, real believer in, in play and what play can be. And I think sometimes, again, it can be really confusing or if you're, you're not used to learning in that way, certainly, you know, years talking years ago in school, there might not have been so much play involved. So you, you may question as a parent, well, what are they actually doing when they're playing? But I suppose it's an understanding that an EYFS play is so central because you can guide play and you can facilitate learning in play um, in a way that you do become quite skilled at it at the same time, but it is so valuable. And through play, you can start building up skills that will lead into later learning. So for example, in play, a child developing the five motor skills that's the early stage of writing. If a child can develop their really fine motor skills, they'll be able to hold a pencil later on and they'll be able to write. If they're engaging in role play quite often and imaginative play, that will lead to great storytelling and writing stories yes. when they're older yeah. and building with construction blocks, brilliant for early maths and problem solving. So in all play, there are developments which will lead to achievements later on. Um, yeah and I, th I think you're completely right and it's important that, that as parents we know that because um, I was I was talking to Hattie's teacher actually um, 
you know she phoned home and and she was saying you know it's about the process not about the end result and um it's interesting that we're all in like a google classroom because all the parents are in there and you kind of see what the other parents are doing and i know there are some like there's there's one child in there who's really good at writing for, for her age but that's because she's loves drawing and she's practiced that so much and she obviously just just loves that that, that she can copy everything whereas and I've kind of said, you know, all the other children are not there. That's just her thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really easy to kind of think, oh, no, the other children are doing it. But but Hattie, she likes, she's been putting on shows all the time she wants to put on a show. And I think, well, you know, you may not really like, um, you know, writing more than six letters at a time for your name. But what she does like doing is putting on a show and she's telling a story and, you know, if a, if a cousin does that, she will copy the exact same story um, and she's trying to replicate that. So I know that that's also a skill, but it's it's knowing that, that that's also going to lead to being a good writer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to remember there are 17 um, early learning goal statements at the end of the reception that you assess children against now. Before that, there is no statutory um, assessments in early years, but settings will follow um, development matters or early years outcomes you might have heard of, um, which have statements linked to age ranges. So ranging from birth to four to 60 months. And there are 17. um, So they are split into seven areas of learning. You've got your prime areas, which cover communication and language, personal, social and emotional development and physical development. And then you have specific areas which links to um, literacy skills, reading and writing, maths, um, understanding the world around you and expressive arts and design. So creative and imaginative play. Now, when a child comes to you in school or at nursery, you will always focus on the prime areas first. You never start at literacy or maths. You look at those prime areas and it's really important to to remember if a child hasn't developed skills in there like communication and language skills like developing vocabulary mixing with other children being able to share and take turns then naturally that might not lead on to other skills like maths and um, literacy reading and writing and and children can develop in different stages at different times so like you were saying about Hattie, you know, loving um, role play, that's really looking at the prime areas. It doesn't matter that her writing's not there yet. I'm not developing absolutely wonderfully from what I've seen of Hattie, but that will catch up. And quite often prime areas will always be stronger because they come first and then skills like reading and writing and maths, they come after. Um, and again, naturally a child could be you know, I've taught a lot of children and I've got boys in mind now, but they can be amazing at maths and they could come in with the strongest math skills and, you know, love problem solving, come to the literacy. They're not quite as enthusiastic about reading. They think writing's boring. So it is absolutely fine for children to be at different rates, even in different areas, because what you would do in school is think, okay, brilliant you're really strong here, this is your strength, this is an area to develop. And assessments in early years aren't or certainly shouldn't be formal, they're very much ongoing informal assessments and 
what we do is pick up our next step. So in that situation, it could be that I'm thinking, okay, Hattie, let's develop writing as your next step. And you would naturally build that into her learning rather than it being highlighted as, oh, well, she's not writing yet. Hmm. It, it doesn't matter. And I think sometimes it's important for parents to hear that because you can become caught up on what they might not be doing and feel hmm. a pressure from seeing other children doing it and thinking, oh, well, they should be there. Hmm. But actually, it, it doesn't matter and they will develop. And it's easy to say that. And sometimes it's hard to think, oh, they, they really should be doing that. But if you sometimes try and push it too much, then actually it can have the opposite effect. And yeah, for me, you want to promote a love of learning and get that love there and the rest will follow. And I think as well, you know, you can see, can't you, you can have that thing where you see um, the other children, you think, oh, they can do that. But what you don't realise is what they can't do. You don't you don't see that, and you don't see what, what strength they don't have that 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 maybe your child does. And um, so let's um let's talk about phonics then. Tell me what you know about phonics because I'm thinking on our list there's quite a lot of stuff to get through on phonics. A basic explanation of phonics, and it's quite hard to try and simplify some of these things. Um, so I'll start with what phonics is. I think sometimes that in itself can be confusing, um, especially if you're not teaching phonics as often as you would do in early years and key stage one perhaps um but phonics is just a way of teaching children skills for early reading and spelling um so in phonics you teach children to identify sounds and to recognize the representation of that sound in its written form so whereas there is 26 letters in the alphabet there are 44 sounds that will be taught in phonics Okay. And when you say 44 sounds, is that, um, that's just the actual sound. That's not in the way it's represented. There's a lot more of them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's the sound. And then as you develop through the phases in phonics, you will learn different ways to represent the same sound, which is where it can become quite complex. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But amazingly, children seem to I'm, I'm kind of convinced children can pick it up easier than adults. I think sometimes it becomes such second nature to children, they can learn it quite quickly, whereas as an adult, it can become quite confusing for you. Okay, so um, phases also came up as a terminology that can be confusing. So that stems from um, letters and sounds, which is a publication by the DfE um, that is guidance for how to teach phonics and the developmental um, stages of phonics and in letters and sounds that's split up into six phases so phase one two three four five and six Um, phase one is typically taught in nursery and phase six typically towards the end of year one and year two and within that there are different sounds that you teach and different development stages that you follow through phonics okay Um, So a phoneme is a single unit of sound. So if you take the word cat, for example, in phonics, you will teach children to hear the phonemes in the word. So cat is made up of three phonemes, k, at. And then a grapheme is the written representation of that sound. Um, So as we were saying before, you will learn throughout the phases different ways where you can represent one sound. So if we took the A sound, for example, 
that you will learn in phase three. That's made up of an A and an I. As you keep developing through the phases in phonics, you will also learn that A could be represented as A and I in rain, but also A and Y in hay, just an A on its own in apron. So children are <laughs> introduced how this sound can be represented in different ways. What's yeah. tricky is applying the right representation of that sound in a word. Um, so obviously you've just, you've talked about uh, phonemes and graphemes. I just say that right. Yes. Yeah. Um, how often do you think it, it, you know, does this kind of thing come up? Um, do, the, do the children actually get told what these terms are? Um, I think that really varies from school to school and sometimes quite often with the scheme that you're following. So DFE have published letters and sounds, which is guidance, but there are a lot of different phonic schemes that schools will follow um, some teach sounds in different orders in different ways um, so I think that um, it can depend on that and certainly when I taught it I didn't really teach phrases like phoneme and grapheme that much I use more childlike words like sounds let's hear the sounds in the word rather than the phoneme whereas other schools I have been in do teach the children let's listen to the phonemes and they'll know what phoneme means so I think it does depend on kind of the school and individual teacher on how much children are made aware of those specific words yeah so I suppose really it kind of depends on that as to whether whether you really need to know this as a parent but obviously if, if school are using these words and and these are in anything that's sent home then you're going to need to know yeah absolutely and I don't think if if I hadn't taught phonics, if I saw the word phoneme and grapheme, I don't think I'd even know where to start with what that actually means. Yeah, just like me right now. Um, so the <laughs> next one, I don't even know how to say the next one. <laughs> um, is it digraph? <laughs> yeah, digraph. I was just like, is it digraph or is it something else? <laughs> yeah, so digraph, really simple. And sometimes you think, oh, that's what it means. But that's where two letters make one sound so if you think of the ch sound in chip the c and the h together make the one sound ch there isn't four sounds even though there's four letters because those two letters have come together um, again it can be taught that they hold hands or they've joined together to make just the one sound so that's what a digraph is mm -hmm. what becomes more complicated is if it's a split digraph um, so a split digraph is when a digraph, so remember a digraph is two letters that make one sound, a split digraph is when they become split by a consonant in a word. So if you take the word make, for example, the K is splitting up the A and the E, but in that word, the A and the E are making the A sound. So make, make, or the same with lake, lake. Um, there is a split digraph for every vowel sound. Um, so A is made up of A and E, but they would be split by a consonant in that word. Um, or we could look at the split digraph E, such as in the word Eve. The E and the E have been split by the consonant in the middle, but within that word, they're making the E sound. So we teach children not until phase five, um, but to look out for split digraphs in words and how that can change the word so what you're talking about really is like the old magic e 
um yeah exactly that where you have the e on the end yes yes and that's quite hard to explain without being able to visually show it (laughs) that's what I found really hard about that one normally you'd be writing it and showing so I hope it makes sense just saying it (laughs) and this is what we said to Betty as well you know we think um you know we can only on a podcast we can only kind of say so much and if you're really having a problem then the best place to go really is back to the child's teacher um but also we'll be looking at putting some videos together as well I think um just to explain um things in more detail um not a long thing for EYFS but maybe just a short thing so you can search for what you really need definitely I think that would be really helpful yeah okay right so next one then um, so then we move on to a trigraph. So if you've got your head around what a digraph is, <laughs> it makes a trigraph quite easy because that's where you've got three letters that make one sound, um, such as the sound I in light. It's made up of I, G and H. So the three letters um, come together to make the I sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so blending, um, this is how we teach children um, in the early stages of reading. So it's about bringing sounds together um, to make a word. You are merging sounds or blending sounds together, um, such as bringing k, at together. What word can you hear? It's cat. So we will be teaching children to listen to the sounds and blend them together to make the word, um, which leads on to segmenting, which is the complete opposite. So that's splitting up a word into its sound so if I take the same word cat you'd be saying out loud and asking a child well what sounds can you hear in cat and you'd be hoping that they could split that up to tell you well cat is made up of cat Mm. Um, and that develops as the sounds become more complex um, and in different words throughout the phases. Well thank you you've done it's just like whistle, whistle top, <laughs> whistle stop tour of uh, phonics there. Thank you. Very whistle um, stop tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and I think, you know, I mean, the trigraph, digraph, maybe that might not be something that, that parents really do need to know. But blending and segmenting, then definitely, because, you know, I was even talking to Hattie's teacher about that about that the other day and obviously I know what they are because I feel like they're easier um and I understand them already um and and you know we're playing some games just just to get around that um but I do think it's useful in general um okay so tricky words then (laughs) yeah so tricky words are also taught um within phonics there are different tricky words for different phases Um, And tricky words are words that are phonetically irregular. So the words that can't be sounded out. Um, So we teach children to just recognize tricky words by sight. So again, if I start really early on in phonics and think of phase two, um, you cover tricky words like I, to, no, go and the. Um, The words that can't be sounded out. And if a child did try and sound out the word the, they wouldn't be getting the word that it actually is. Um, so children are taught almost banks of tricky words through each phase so that they build up um, a whole bank of words that they are just recognising by sight and they know not to sound it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what about nonsense words then? Um, so nonsense words are words that aren't real. Um, so if you took the word glib, um, they 
are decodable. You can sound them out, but they aren't actually real words in the English language. Um, and when your child goes into year one, they will um, go through a phonics screening test and nonsense words um, do feature in there, or they might be referred to as alien words, where children are expected to sound out the word, even though it's not real. Um, it's almost testing their knowledge of using the sounds to read words. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the last one then, number bonds. Yeah, so moving away from phonics. <laughs> number yeah. bonds don't come into phonics, don't worry. We're finally <laughs> um, in maths, num- we're finally in maths. <laughs> <laughs> we are, and surprisingly, it was only number bonds that um, came up for EYFS. But yeah, so number bonds are pairs of numbers that go together to make another number. So if you look at 10, a number bond of 10 would be 6 and 4 or 7 and 3. Um, so it's pairs of numbers that go together to make one number. But it's, gen- it's generally, isn't it, you know, number bonds to 10, number bonds to 20? Yes, yeah, it doesn't have to just be a number bond to 10. I think it's important to say not focus on just recalling. Um, so try not to get your child just to be able to recall, actually understanding what two is, what eight is, and how those parts come together to make 10. Yeah, um, there can be quite a difference. And sometimes I think it's quite easy to teach a child to recite and not actually understand what that really means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, we've covered so much there. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm thinking, oh, this podcast going to be really long now because I've got four, <laughs> four to uh, go at. But um, yeah, thank yeah, you so I'm much. Sorry if I've gone on more than what I should have done. <laughs> No, you haven't at all. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome and thank you for having me. I know that I struggle with all the terminology in EYFS when it comes to my daughter. And you'd think with them being under six that it would be easy. So now we're moving up to talk about Key Stage 1, which is Year 1. And so they're ages 5 to 6 and also Year 2, ages 6 to 7. And typically in year two, children would normally be taking the SATs test next month. But obviously they've been cancelled for, for reasons that we understand. So the second interview is with Katie Cockcroft. She is a skilled proofreader in the year one team. So Katie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for letting me be here. I'm excited. So you are... Um, a proofreader at Classroom Secrets and you're working with Key Stage 1. Um, yeah. So just tell me a bit of your background first. Um, so I've got four years experience in teaching. Uh, my degree is in primary education, early years and Key Stage 1. That is my specialism. Um, when I first finished uni, my school that I worked at offered me some supply in reception until September when I got my class. So I was uh, I did a couple of months of supply in reception a couple of days a week. And then I did two years in year one and two years in year two. And for three of those years, I was English lead uh, and I was also humanities lead for a brief period of time as well. So I've done all sorts in quite a short yeah. period of time. <laughs> That's amazing. And if you had to tell um, parents of children who have children in Key Stage 1, um, if you had to tell them one little thing that you think would help them get through this um, period of time where they're having to homeschool the children, what would it be? I think 
for me, the, the most important thing is keeping the routine in place where you can, even if it's not the school's day routine, just a routine that works for you. I think that really helps everything that you do at home because it's getting them ready for when they go back to school which of course we don't know when that's going to be but if it's not until September it's going to get them ready and get them prepared for the next year it's going to make them calm and thrive and relax it should also help their behavior as well because they know what's coming next and they don't just have to free flow and do whatever they want they, they know what's coming um so it can be a fun routine but I definitely think that some sort of routine will help them thrive in this really challenging time mm-hmm. I think r- routine is important and I mean, we've kind of let the routine slip in the Easter holidays, um, but I am quite keen to get it back <laughs> when we start next week. I think it's for me more than more than the kids, to be honest. But, okay, <laughs> right. So part of this podcast is that we want to talk about uh, terminology. Um, so we've had a lot of reports from parents that they don't understand necessarily all of the words or phrases that we use. Um, so we're trying to just cover a whistle-stop tour of different phrases and different key stages. So, are you ready? It's like a Yep, quick... I am. Excellent. <laughs> right. I think a lot of people will know what this one is, but, but we'll still cover it anyway. So, 3D shapes. So, 3D, three-dimensional shapes. So, it's the shapes. We say to children that it's the shapes you can pick up and hold. Um, things like cubes, spheres and cones. So we would often call the 2D shapes the flat shapes and then the 3D shapes the ones you can pick up. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And that's what I like. So people know what 3D shapes are, but you've told us what the children know it as really and how to explain yeah. it, which is really good. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, a Venn diagram. So it's quite hard to explain without visualising it, but I'll give it a go. It's a diagram in the name of two overlapping circles that you can use to sort things so you might sort objects with them shapes you might sort numbers so it gives you because you overlap the circles it gives you three sections so the section in the middle caused by the two circles overlapping so for example if you were sorting 3d shapes you might do flat shapes at one side uh, sorry shapes with flat faces at one side curved faces at the other and then the section in the middle would be shapes with flat and curved faces so that may, might be like a cylinder that you put in the middle because it can fall into both categories right okay thank you um what about related subtraction so this is to do with fact families addition and subtraction and related facts they're often called lots of different things depending on how you look at them um, so you can do related addition and subtraction calculations using the same three numbers. So, for example, if you had one, two and three, you could have one plus two equals three, but you could also have three subtract two equals one. Um, they're all the same calculations in the same fact family, but you can write a range of calculations using the same three numbers. And it's normally two additions and two subtractions, or you can write them backwards as well. So this is all if, you know, a parent gets this kind of information in an email or on a worksheet. Um, I'm kind of thinking I hope I don't get that because I might forget what it's called Um, okay Uh right what's a pictogram then so pictogram is a pictorial way of representing data and information that's being collected so it would probably be displayed on a chart Um, so for example if children have been asked their favorite hobby the number of children might be shown by their faces or little stick men so you might have the hobbies going along the bottom like football netball and then the children's faces on top so you can count them and see how many children picked football as their favorite hobby but as well you can have keys at the side of pictograms where a picture might represent more than one so for example a 
face might actually represent two children or five children, in which case you've got to count the faces in jumps of twos or fives or tens to work out the total number of children that have picked that area. And it would be the same with whatever data is on the pictogram. It doesn't just have to be children and hobbies. It could be favourite food, places to go on holiday, anything like that. Yeah. And also on the pictogram, if, if it does represent four and then there's only half a face, then that would obviously represent two. Um, yeah, correct. So there's that to factor in as well. Um, yeah. All right. OK. What about exchange? <coughs> so this is quite a hard one to explain verbally, but I'll do my best. It can mean many things, but obviously this is key stage one. So I'm just going to talk about addition and subtraction, very basic addition and subtraction. So they'll often see this in the column method, which is normally introduced in year two, but schools don't always cover it. It depends on the math scheme that your school's following. So in addition, an exchange takes place where two of the digits add up to 10 or more than 10. So if the ones add up to 10 or more, you've got to swap 10 of those ones for one 10. In subtraction, the exchange takes place when you can't take one number from another. So you then you have to borrow a 10 from the tens column and put 10 ones in the ones column. So in the examples I've mentioned, you've exchanged 10 ones for a 10 or you've exchanged a 10 for 10 ones. And it's also called borrowing in subtraction. And in addition, you can call it carrying as well. So carry the one um, yeah. is also another phrase you might have heard before. Yeah, and that's it. And I think a lot of parents when they went to school will have done the borrowing and the carrying. Um, and that's certainly what I remember. So it's just a, just a fancy word. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> yeah. OK, fractions. So very it's it's people get scared by this. But in case you want, it's very simple and it's very straightforward. So a fraction is just a part of a whole. So, for example, a half is one whole split into two equal parts. And that's the fraction of the whole. So if you just think about it really simply, you won't have any problems with fractions in key stage one. And how and how difficult do, do fractions get in key stage one? Um, three quarters is probably the, the hardest. So they do halves, quarters and thirds. Um, but then they've got to work out things like three quarters. So it's about splitting them into four equal parts and then finding the total of three of those four equal parts to find out the fraction three quarters okay um so it like you say it's simple stuff isn't it um yeah. okay what about digits in a number so a digit is the numeral used within a number so you just your normal numbers one two three and zero so the number 153 has three digits you've got your one your five and your three your 100 your five tens and your three ones so your digits are one five and three okay so so the actual numbers the, the single numbers. that make it up yeah yeah okay um mathematical symbols so obvi the obvious ones that spring to mind that everyone will know your additions your add symbol your subtract symbol your multiplication symbol and your division symbol uh, and your equals as well but um other ones that you can use the comparisons um symbols which mean less than and more than you might have heard these referred to as crocodiles the crocodile always eats the biggest number is one i remember from when i was at primary school so those are also symbols that shouldn't be forgotten about because they're equally as important and and i think you've just mentioned something really important there so I think, you know, we all remember what add is and we all remember subtract, multiply and divide. But we don't always remember more than and less than and which way around they are. But that's mm. a really easy way to remember. You know, if you if your child does have more than and less than that, the crocodile always eats the bigger number. So the, the, the wider bit should be facing the big number. 
Yeah, and especially in key stage one, those symbols are so frequently used. You don't really see them as much moving through school, but in key stage one, it's really important because they're working on the basic knowledge of place value and how much a number is actually worth. And they need to really understand, for example, how, how much a hundred actually is. What does a hundred mean? And using those symbols really help to demonstrate their understanding of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, multiple. Okay, so the result when one number is multiplied by another. So, for example, six is mul- is a multiple of two and three because two times three equals six. Okay. Um, place value, what's that? So I've just mentioned that before. It's the value of digits in the number. So knowing how much a number's worth and knowing how much each digit is worth. So depending on the position in a number, um, the numbers can mean different things. So in two-digit numbers, you have your tens and your ones, the tens column and the ones column. The ones were often referred to as units back in the day. That's how I remember being taught them. Yeah. Um, in the number 53, the value of the five digit is 50, five lots of 10, which is 50. And then your three, your ones, three ones is three. Super, thank you. I'm just thinking, when you're racing through these, you're just like, bang, bang, bang. I know the answers. <laughs> I'm winning this quiz. <laughs> it does feel like I'm back at school. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously you've talked about place value. Um, a lot of resources talk about place value counters. Yeah, so these are colour counters used in schools. And I actually think um, this, these are really hard for children to understand. Um, you often see base 10, which are the sticks and the bricks. So the sticks of 10 bricks and the single ones. That's really easy for the children to see and count because you can hold it and you can see that the 10 sticks are different to the ones. But with the place value counters, they're all the same size, but they're normally different colours. And they usually have one, 10 or 100 written on them to demonstrate the value of each digit in a number. So like I spoke about before, in the number 45, You'd have four counters with 10 on them, showing that each digit, showing that the digits represent four tens, four lots of 10, which is 40. So you'd have your four counters with 10 on them. And then you'd have five counters with ones on and they'd be a different colour. So it, it is quite hard for the children to use these because they all look the same. The only thing that's mm-hmm. different about them is the colour. It, it is quite an abstract concept, um, but that's why we use them a lot in our resources because it does need to be mastered. And again, it helps them to demonstrate their understanding of knowing the place value in a number and knowing how much a number's worth. Mm-hmm. So if um, if a resource kind of had place value counters, then you'd expect them to be on a place value chart then? Possibly, not always. So the place value chart links back to what I've said on place value. You'd have your tens column and your ones column, and it's got two sections in the grid, and you can put manipulatives like place value counters or base 10 on to build that number. But it might not necessarily always be on a place value chart. It could just be displayed on a piece of paper. If you're using it in class or at home, you could just put them on a table. It doesn't have to be organized like that. They could be organized randomly. We start off by organizing them in a place value chart because you group all your tens together and all your ones together and it makes it easy easier for them to count but as they become as they master that skill you might want to mix them up and put them in a random order because then it tests the knowledge of really counting and understanding how much a number's worth yeah and I guess I guess parents could could make these really with with paper just little circles with uh, 100 or 10 or 1 large you know like the flat marbles um, beads or stones flat stones outside you could use anything like that yeah okay um right we're going to move on to literacy then because you were uh, you bossed the math quiz um, <laughs> so um are you ready yep <laughs> noun okay so 
and we know some of these are quite basic, but we're going to go through them anyway. Um, noun is a naming word for a person, a place or a thing. A chair, a table, a leg, a cup, a glass. Uh, they're all nouns, the names of things. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, we say, we say this is basic and we're, we're going to go through everything. But actually, I don't remember being taught any of these at school, not even a noun. And I've learned these later. So, you know, it, it might be the case that that people honestly don't know what these are because they were never taught in school yeah and as well going through the list and I'm going to mention some phrases that aren't actually included on our list now but things like a noun phrase I'm going to go through that later and things that other people have gone through like parenthesis and different types of clauses I'm sure they're going to be covered elsewhere in this podcast episode but those are actually terms that I was taught at A-level English not at primary school I remember going through them at A-level English because we had to dissect the texts and we had to pick out every single feature. And I did not know what parenthesis was before I was 17 years old. Um, And that's what I find shocking about it really is how much children actually need to know now. Yeah. And I think I I learned about parenthesis um, probably, well, years into my classroom secrets journey. Um, You know, when, when all the other teachers across the country learn about it because they've never been taught by it at school yeah exactly yeah anyway right so verb so a doing word or an action word so run sleep and walk you might also see running sleeping walking which are the present tense and then the past version ran slept or walking walked walking yeah yeah failed the quiz (laughs) ran slept walked (laughs) thank you um okay adjective you're human though you're showing everyone you're human and that's the important very true (laughs) so Um, adjective a describing word it describes the noun so beautiful quiet colorful um i would like to steer the children away from just using colors and basic nouns like happy and sad uh because those come out a lot and they can get a little bit boring so it's about trying to encourage them to use adjectives that are a bit more exciting mm-hmm. yeah and a bit show that they they've got a, a deeper breadth of vocabulary as well yeah it's really important to build it up at, at a young age that they've always got it mm-hmm. um adverb so a word to describe the verb so quickly loudly and carefully we often do say that these are words ending in ly but not all adverbs end in ly you can have things like fast and hard so he ran fast um doesn't end in ly it's still an adverb mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of children like to write he he ran fastly yeah <laughs> bless them <laughs> yeah um okay so a conjunction so Again, this is something that I used to know them as in a previous life. They used to be called connectives, and that's what Mm -hmm. I was taught. Um, Words that are used to link two or more parts of a sentence. So some conjunctions that they'll use at key stage one, and, so, if, but, and because. And they're used to extend sentences and make them longer. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Okay, a consonant. So a letter of the alphabet that is not a vowel. So you've got your A, E, I, O, U, your vowels. Any other letter that's not a vowel is a consonant. So B, C, D and F are all examples of consonants. And I guess in key stage one, they do quite a bit of alphabet work at the beginning. Yeah. And also in year two for spelling rules as well, um, it, it can help their understanding of adding um, prefixes and suffixes to words knowing when to double a consonant so when stop becomes stopped it's about them knowing to double the p and we do talk about doubling the consonant so it's important that they know what a consonant is for mm-hmm. that purpose 
And when you're talking about prefixes and suffixes, just realise I thought, oh, more more jargon. I'm coming to that, I think. Do you want me to okay. do those now? <laughs> no, no, we'll come back. Um, okay, so what's a clause then? A group of words that contains a subject and a verb. So in the phrase, the cat slept, the cat is a subject and the verb is slept. Um, right. Oh, we've got into writing now, I think. Um, so a sender. So we've got ascenders and descenders, um, and they're both handwriting terms. So your ascenders are the what you'll find on tall letters. I used to call them tall letters. So letters such as B, D, F, H, K, and L and T, they have ascenders, which is part of the letter that goes up higher than all the other letters. Um, so it's really important with the letter formation, knowing that the B is taller than the A, for example. Um, and with the descenders, it's the same thing. So some letters such as um, G, J, P, Q and Y have a descender or a tail that goes down below the line. And it's really important that it does go below the line. That you can see a clear difference in the sizing of the letters, especially in year two. It is something that is studied very carefully when they go through writing moderation, when the writing is looked at by experts and they need to have the handwriting there um, to be a kind of a good standard of the development. Uh, of development in their writing handwriting is really important it needs to be legible and there needs to be a clear difference in the letter sizing because it sets them up really well for when they start to join letters mm -hmm. okay thank you um right a noun phrase then you touched on it before yep so a word or a group of words that contains a noun so you could have the cars and cars is the noun in year two they might also do expanded noun phrases which are noun phrases with adjectives in them so you could say the shiny red car that would be an expanded noun phrase okay oh right a question mark which i know i feel like <laughs> yeah i feel like we've got so many of these so i'll make this one short it's the punctuation used at the end of a question yeah an exclamation mark so used at the end of an exclamation or to show strong feelings or volume if, if it's supposed to be shouted or emphasis. The thing is, the reason why exclamation mark here is because um, in key stage one, they have to know about exclamations. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, tell me about them, because that's what makes this tricky. Yeah, definitely. So you're right. Putting an exclamation at the end of something doesn't make it an exclamation sentence. As I said earlier, exclamation marks can be used to show surprise, to show volume. If a character in a story is shouting, for example, but that doesn't mean that it's an exclamation sentence. Um, so exclamation sentences need to start with what or how, and it's got to contain a verb and it's a full sentence. So for example, what a good girl you are, or what a fantastic day we had. Uh, examples of exclamation sentences yeah okay thank you um i remember when they first came out the uproar um of <laughs> the exclamation sentence for you yeah um, people still uh, <laughs> yeah okay comma what what kind of commas do, do we need to be thinking about in key stage one so it is, it, again, it is quite straightforward in key stage one compared to the things that they have to do further up in school. So commas are, are the punctuation used to separate words, phrases or clauses. In key stage one, children are taught to use commas to separate words in a list. So a perfect example when I was teaching commas was to write uh, a set of instructions and write an ingredient list. So mm -hmm. you will need flour, comma, eggs and sugar uh, and so on. So that, that's kind of the basic comma work that they'll be doing doing in year two mm -hmm. okay thank you um right we've got more um apostrophes so 
that's type of punctuation again used to show possession so tom's hand uh, the hand belongs to tom so we put the apostrophe for the s to show that it belongs to him or it can also be used um to show that a letter or some letters have been left out and this is called a contraction so for example i am can become i'm so the A from am has been removed and it's been replaced with an apostrophe. So if we go on to contractions, two words that have been shortened into one word by leaving a letter or some letters out and replacing them with an apostrophe. So the I'm example that I've just said, it can also be longer. It could be could not becomes couldn't. You've removed the O from not and you've put an apostrophe in its place. Um, okay, command word then. So there's a couple of different... Um, names for this um command words are obviously in the name words that are used in commands but you might have also called them bossy verbs or imperative verbs i do think it's quite important to teach children and tell them that it is the imperative verb because that is the official name for it um so for example in a command where you're being bossy telling someone to do something put the cup down put is the imperative verb okay thank you um okay we've already covered uh Oh no, we haven't. Prefix and suffix. We have mentioned them, but I haven't gone into them. So prefix, um, a letter or a group of letters added to the start of the word. Um, and I like to say pre, because pre means before. So pre before the word prefix sometimes changes the meaning of the root word or the original word. So for example, unkind, the prefix un has been added to the word kind to change the meaning. And it means the opposite of kind. Um, with suffix, that's added to the end of the word, which sometimes changes the meaning of the root of the original word again. So you might have jumping and the suffix is ing, cheerful, the suffix is full and useless, the suffix is less. Yeah, OK. Um, last one then. Oh, I bet you're glad you're at the end of this quiz. Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, we've got extend a sentence. So when you extend the sentence, you're basically making it longer. So the obvious thing to do there is to use a conjunction to extend it, to add extra information and to make it more interesting. So the black cat sat on the mat could be extended using the conjunction and. So the black cat sat on the mat and went to sleep. But if it was me, I'd replace the word black because that's a boring adjective for the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And um I think in year one as well, there's a lot of and, and as we, as we move into year two, we try and use different words than and all the time. Uh, yeah, and it's about them knowing as well. Like sometimes you'll say to them, right, we're going to do a piece of writing and I really want us to work on our conjunctions and I really want you to use and. And then they'll say, then they'll write something like, the black cat sat on the mat and it was a nice day and, and it's just and, 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 and. So it's about yeah, the correct yeah. use and, and when, and when enough is enough and you can stop your yeah, sentence yeah. and leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember writing like that as a kid, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and then they come up to you and they say, Miss, I've done a full page of writing and it's just one long sentence with loads of ands and you just cry inside a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you're experiencing this, teachers feel your pain. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much. Um, hopefully that's been useful. I know that we've probably covered some things that people do know, but, but yeah. it's not just about telling you what it is. It's giving you some insight into what, what we're actually working on at that age, you know, if your child's in year one or in year two. Um, so if you found that helpful, um, that's really great. And um, if you're struggling any more than that, then we suggest getting in touch with your child's teacher um, because they're probably sending the work home to you as well. Um, so thank you so much, Katie. That's all right. Thanks for having me. 
Compared to when I was at school, the terminology now needed to be known by children is immense. And I'm sure most of you who didn't already know will be shocked to find out how much is needed to be understood by Key Stage 1. Hopefully this helps to give you a little bit of clarity around the words and phrases that you are likely to see on the schoolwork for your children that's pitched at years 1 and 2. Let's move on now to Lower Key Stage 2 with Lindsay Griggs, our Year 3 Year Group Manager. So this is Years 3 and 4, the first two years of traditional junior school where the children are 7 and 8 in Year 3 and 8 and 9 in Year 4. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're going to talk to us about Lower Key Stage 2, so that's Years 3 and 4. Um, do you want to tell me uh, who you are and uh, the experience that you've got? Yeah, so as you already said, my name is Lindsay. I've, um, I'm a year three manager at Classroom Secrets. I've been working with yourself for the nearly three years now, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable, really. Um, working my way up from being a resource creator and going into management now um, and taking on the role of the year three manager. And so in school, what experience have you got with year three and four in school? Uh, well, I worked in the same school for just short of 12 years and I worked as a HLTA. So I worked across the whole of the school years from EY affairs right up until year six, working through um, every subject and all year groups. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, obviously I worked in that particular school quite a lot and yeah. you were full time teaching really as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, the school that I worked at were very supportive. We worked really well together, myself and one of the other classroom teachers. Um, she was part of the senior management team. She took quite a lot of time out of class, so I used to cover the classes for her. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you had to give any advice to parents of children in years three or four, um, if it was just one thing that they could sort of grasp while while we're off due to sort of coronavirus and everything what would it be well so i have actually got a child in year three um so my youngest is in year three i think year three and four it's a really tricky couple of years because there's no actual stats that are coming up in the near future it's year one you're focusing on getting to year two year two you focus on your stats year five you start thinking about the stats in year six year three and four are a little bit not in limbo land because it's the year full of learning. I think they get a lot of input. They get a lot of new vocabulary. They get a lot of new different skills that they need to start bringing in for the maths. It's very much the years where they start adding in a lot more depth to the mm. curriculum. Obviously, learning the timetables is really important in year three and year four. It jumps up to now knowing all of the timetables in year four. Um, whereas before you learn a few of the times tables in the in the other years, whereas now it's expected that you will know all of them up to 12 times 12. Mm. I also think it's really important that they now have to expand their sentences. So before they started to expand them in year two, but now it's really expanding the sentences and understanding vocabulary that they are going to have to use as well. 
Okay. So working on times tables and expanding vocabulary. And the good thing about that is you don't have to be writing it down, do you, to be expanding the vocabulary? You know, you could be going on a walk and you could get that in there as well. Absolutely. And that was one point I did want to talk to you about. If I had to say, what can you focus on right now? Whilst obviously whilst we're off, like you said, I think talking is massive. I think it's absolutely huge. I think so much happens when you talk and so many ideas come from just conversing with your child. Mm -hmm. You've got to imagine on average is probably 30 children in every class. All of them to one adult, maybe two if you've got some support. Right now, those children have got the opportunity to have one-to-one, two-to-one or three-to-one support with an adult. So just talking, you can start to really build up ideas, which then opportunities arise for learning because you then know what your child is really interested in and what really will bring out their creative side, which might lead into writing. You know, we've used that just in this last week at home with my husband. He, he's taken on the role of teacher whilst I'm upstairs working. Um, he's not a teacher, he's a professional rugby player by trade, so he's not ever done any type of teaching in his life and whilst the children were off at Easter we're obviously still working at classroom secrets every day so he didn't want to follow a curriculum style lesson so I said we'll take them for a walk get them to write down what they see we'll pop that into some kind of poetry we'll we'll build on it we'll develop it they'll do it themselves just by being outside and talking to you is all they need yeah yeah and I read some of um that poetry as well and it was really really good it was really good it, it was a bit of a funny story because um I said why don't you have a poem with them and he won't mind me saying this I have actually said I might say it so <laughs> the morning came and I could I was upstairs in the little office and I thought what's going on and I went downstairs they don't want to do a poem but what can we do and I said so what have you asked them to do I told them to write a poem I said yeah but children need it's like a seed. You've got to plant it. You've got to water it. And then it'll grow. So, you, you know, let's plan it. What We've got to plan. It's not a step. So I did like a little step plan. Vocabulary, sentences, looking at rhyme and couplets. Do a step a day. And by the end, it'll be so much more well, satisfying for them because they've really gone through it yeah. themselves. And easier for you to manage. I suppose one of the tips there then is is that you have to kind of think about what process you go through and break that down and show them what the process is. Parent, I don't think we do because yeah. why would we? Yeah, why wouldn't would we? But he's he's definitely doing well. Three weeks in, he can have his lesson observation next week. <laughs> I feel sorry for him already. <laughs> <laughs> don't feel sorry for him. He's quite enjoying it. Okay, right. So let's get to the um, let's get to the vocab then. Um, well, all the all the terminology. So um, we've kind of just compiled this list of of terminology that parents of children in years three and four might come across in in the learning resources that maybe they've got at home, or um, the parent and uh, the teacher might talk to them about. Yeah. Um. So, are you ready for the maths? We're ready for the maths like a little quiz right okay no, I quite like this this is exciting let's give a pass okay right so a non-unit fraction yeah it's a nice one to start with so a non-unit fraction is just a fraction which has more than one of the, on the numerator the number at the top 
So it can be any fraction which has a number that's greater than one at the top of the fraction, the numerator. You see, that's the thing. It's such a simple thing, but to read non-unit fraction, who has a clue what that is? I know, I know. Just, just a fraction that's got a numerator bigger than one. Okay. Um, what's a single digit denominator? So similar to um, the non-unit fraction, the numerator is the number at the top, the denominator is the number below. So it's a, a fraction that's got a denominator, which is just a single digit. Now, whether this is right, probably isn't. I used to teach um, children that the denominator was the number down, D for down, D for denominator. I know it's not technically right, but it's just one little way to help them remember which is the denominator and which is the numerator. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's fine. Um, that's the kind of thing I would have kind of remembered as a child. Um, okay, right, a fraction of a quantity. Okay, so going on from fractions, so it's just a fraction now of a number, so an amount. Um, and back to my D for denominator, D for down, if you find in a fraction of an amount, you are going to divide that amount by the denominator. So I always like to link those little three Ds together. Divide, denominator, down. So it's to find a fraction of an amount. So a half of 16, so the half, the denominator is two, 16 divided by two, your answer would be eight. Just um, obviously um, you can't see Lindsay, but I can because we're video calling, because obviously we're um, <laughs> in, well, um, <laughs> social distancing, obviously. But just listening, just watching her, like she just so loves maths, bless her. <laughs> <laughs> I just does. like that there's, that there's only really gonna ever be one answer. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Um, okay, what about a part whole model then? I'm sure lots of yeah. lots of parents will have been seeing this and we, it's not anything that we did when we were at school. Absolutely not. It's just a different representation, a different model, uh, usually represented with circles. And it's just showing a whole, so the whole number, which has then been separated in parts. It's really hard to explain this visually, but if you can imagine um, a circle at the top with that whole number in, and then having two parts coming off um, connected with lines with other circles underneath and they will have parts of that whole number. So you might have 29 as your whole and then you might have 20 in the other circle which is connected and you've got to think well what's that other part that's going to make the whole. In a way it is a bit like finding the difference or adding. Finding or... the difference or it's just a different way to see it and it's a really good representation for children to then understand that two numbers added together equal a whole but also you can do the inverse from that. So you can yeah. see the inverse yeah. being the opposite. So you can see that the whole subtract the part will give you the other part. So yeah. it's a nice way to start reasoning things. So it's, it's generally a picture as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it can be shown in different um, representations using different types of manipulatives. I think it's really important with maths that we just don't worry too much about how we do it now being how we did it before because going back again to uh, my husband doing his teaching this this last few weeks he was teaching my daughter who was in year five about something and he was giving her an explanation and it was fine and she was so hung up because she's like i will follow the rule to the t kind of a girl saying well that's not how i've been taught to do it in school and and, and i could hear again really really worked up about it 
And I just had to stop and I say, what, you know, what your daddy's telling you is it's not wrong. It's another way. And actually, you know, it's really important to see different ways because yeah. that will add to the bank of problem solving. And problem solving is so big because it, you can do so much with these kind of numbers mm. that they both got the same answer. They didn't necessarily get it in the right, the same way. And not one way is right way. We have the ways that we'd like them to get to that number. But yeah. Actually, adding in a few little experience of, well, this is how I did it in my day. It, it's not going to hurt them. It's actually probably going to help them and get more into that problem-solving concept and actually start to reason behind, well, yeah, daddy does it that way, but I actually have a really simpler way or an easier way or another way. But it's So I just think don't be afraid to say, well, when I was a kid, this is how we did it because it's fine. Yeah, and it's also it's it's part of that learning opportunity. We've got an opportunity now that, well, hopefully we're never going to have to experience again. Um, and it's and it's diff, you know it's going to be something that children will remember and so why not do something different um, absolutely you know absolutely you can do so much with you with maths without doing maths okay so that's maths over with then um literacy are you ready i'm ready main clause okay then so it's just um a sentence a sentence that makes sense on its own so it needs a subject Okay, and a verb. The verbs, obviously, the doing word. For example, you might have the dog. So the dog being the subject. The dog, the noun. And um, barked. So the dog barked. It's just a full sentence, standalone, on its own. So that would be the main clause. Okay. Um, a subordinate clause, then? So a subordinate clause is a clause that you're going to use. It's a part of a sentence that you're going to use to extend a sentence. Is it doesn't make sense on its own. So it's a way of expanding that main clause. You may have um, the dog barked, and then you say the dog barked because it was scared. And I think it might be, I'm going off key here, but it might be worth just mentioning that you've got to add in the subordinating conjunction, which is the cost, which we're gonna come on to a few way, a few things down, I think. Um, so it's just, extends the sentence but it doesn't make sense on its own so the subordinating clause will not make sense it's not a full sentence so because it was scared doesn't make sense on its own which means it's a I means a subordinate clause because it's a subordinate clause yeah mm -hmm. okay that makes sense and um, so a relative clause then yeah. a relative clause it's a type of a subordinate clause so it's a, another part of the sentence that it won't standalone as a full sentence it's got to be attached to the main clause the relative bit is because it's describing the noun or the pronoun that's in the sentence and um, so it can only be placed after the noun or pronoun and it has it uses a relative pronoun so examples of relative pronouns are who whom whose which that so the cat slept so you've got your main clause which was normal so the relative pronoun of which is making it link to the cat and then it's extending that sentence mm, okay um so you mentioned pronoun then what's that a, a pronoun replaces the noun so a noun is 
um, you'll probably done nouns when you've done the year two, I'm assuming, but it's a noun is something that you can touch, see, so a person, a boy, a cat, a fence, a pen, and the pronoun just replaces that so that you're not repeating yourself in a sentence. So you may, if you had the girl played the guitar, you could replace that with she played it well, if you was extending that sentence. So you're not always having to repeat the noun. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about an abstract noun? So an abstract noun is a word that refers to ideas or feelings. So it's it's not something, so where we say nouns you can touch or you can see, it's not something that you can touch or see. So it might be um, words like bravery, love. It can be times, so it could be the afternoon, morning. Right, okay, yeah. Um, okay, a preposition. Ooh, a preposition. Word that connects the noun or pronoun to a verb or an adjective, so to the doing word or to the um, description of it. So it often tells us where one thing is in relation to another. So it could be words like after, on, under, inside. So it's explaining where that noun or what that noun is doing. Okay. And you know, just, just having this conversation now, it, it seems a bit silly really that we're going through all these words, but these are words that are actually on worksheets and resources and in the stats test, you know, so preposition and, um, you know, you, you have to know what these words are as a child to, in order to succeed. <laughs> um, it, it's so, they are so difficult. And I do, I honestly do think I, they are really hard for year three and four children to understand, but they know them. They do know them. They are familiar with them. Um, and also, you know, don't be afraid to have to look things up. Yeah. Because it's really important. We're not expected to know everything. And I will often look things up anyway when I'm just about to teach it or when I'm just about to talk about something because you can't remember all these things unless you're using them day in or day out. You're not going to, to remember them. And it's fine to say to your child, do you know what? I actually don't know what's being asked there. So why don't we look it up together? You know, mm. use a search engine. Obviously, don't take that first search you find as gospel because you never know what you might look. But use a search engine. Look things up together. And, and actually just do a bit of research with your child. It's, it's fine to not always have the answers, but sometimes explaining to them where they could find the answers or how they could find the answers together is sometimes worth the weight in gold. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. That's what okay. I do <laughs> <laughs> and me. I'm the person who looked everything up because I just I can't retain it in my head. Um, <laughs> um, okay, what about an adverbial? Yeah, so it, it's like an adverb, and I always used to say that an adverb, the way that I would remember it is adjective. So describing words, so you've got the start of that ad next to verb, so it's describing that verb. So it's describing that doing verb, um, sorry, that doing word. And it can be when, where, or how, it's usually just describing how something is done. Okay, so it could be a single word or a phrase. So I was thinking of one the other day, my husband and son were painting the fence, 
the man painted the fence carefully. So carefully there would be the adverb. Um, and then leading on to fronted adverbials, you can switch the adverbial. You could put it at the beginning of the sentence and it'd be carefully, comma, as a fronted adverbial, will have a comma to separate it. It said carefully, the man painted the fence. So it's mm -hmm. just explaining when, where or how um, something was done. It can be a single word or it can be a phrase. You could have an adverbial phrase as well. And I think, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, in year three and four, children um, talking a lot and, and using this time to, to expand the, the writing or the vocabulary. And, and this is a really good way, isn't it? I think it's, it's one of the more simple forms of a, of a sentence once you can grasp it to vary your writing. Absolutely. Right. Synonym. What's a synonym? It's a word that has the same meaning as another. And, and I always used to like to do, like I like to put little touches on it. Synonym, same. So think of that S for synonym, S for same, bit of alliteration, we'll get to that as well. So using words that, are, that mean the same as another. So happy, you could use content, joyful. It's just trying to get that different vocabulary so you're not always using the same words. Mm-hmm. So synonym you've done, what about antonym? That's nice, it's just the opposite. So it's a word that has the opposite meaning of another. So it's hot, cold, long, short. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what about then oh, a subordinating um, conjunction? I like how you went, oh, like that, because I get it. I really <laughs> do. So children know what conjunctions are. They've been using them um, before. They'll have used them in year two, and I'm assuming they use them in year one as well. It's ways of joining mm -hmm. a sentence together. So there's the two ones that we're going to talk about. We've got subordinating conjunctions and coordinating conjunctions. And I just think that the, the easiest way to understand it is a subordinating conjunction will have a main clause, so a sentence that will stand alone on its own. It will then join a subordinating clause, so a, a sentence that will not make sense on its own. So the subordinating conjunction will have two parts of the sentence that are unequal, it will say like unequal in importance. One that's the main part of the sentence, one that's extending the sentence. Um, Examples of conjunctions, you could use because, although, before, how, if, once. I'm sure if you asked your child some conjunctions, they would throw all these at you. Um, they know how to use them to extend them. They may not know which type they're using or why they're using that one. Mm -hmm. Whereas the coordinating conjunction, um, which is slightly different, that will join two sentences together that will stand alone, will make sense on their own. They tend, the ones that you mainly use for a coordinate, the, the most um, frequently used are and, but, or. So an example of that might be, I had a terrible headache, but I went to school. So I had a terrible headache, it stands alone, it's its own sentence. I went to school, it's its own sentence. You can join those together. There are other coordinating conjunctions 
um, I will provide you a list as well. No, that's really helpful, actually. I've never heard it described like that before. So thank you. You've, you've, you've set that in my mind as well. So coordinating means, the, you know, you've got two sentences you're joining together. And uh, support... equal importance as such. They're both the one's not main and one's not supporting that. They're both standalone sentences. Yeah, but with the subordinating conjunction, you know, when you've got the bit that doesn't make sense on its own, that's, that's when you Jesus, use it. Yeah. Yeah, I did explain this to my husband before, and he said that I was not explaining it right, so it, I confused him. So we had to have um, a little talk, chat about that. <laughs> well, the thing is, well done to Scott because he's helped you explain it so well. So thanks, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and um, okay, so the last one then, you'll be pleased to know alliteration. I love alliteration, mainly because my name was alliteration before I got married. Um, so, <laughs> so alliteration is just using several words in a sentence that have the same sound, um, same letter, but same sound. Oh, so it's my name, Lindsay Lord. Mm -hmm. Alliteration. As was, as was. As was, as was, yeah. Uh, Billy's Beagle Bart. There we go, that's an alliteration for you. Children Thank love you. alliteration too. They do, and I actually think a lot of children do actually know what alliteration is because they always remember doing the alliteration poem or something like that. I think, that, I think it's a fun one. Definitely yeah. that one. Okay. Thank you. So, I mean, obviously it's been a whistle-stop tour and um, we've got a lot of um, terminology in there, but hopefully it's, it's helpful and, and as, um, as we've said before, you know, if you're really struggling, then yes, you can look things up. Um, and, and we do understand that we're probably going to have to do some videos on, on specific things because it is difficult to explain kind of on a podcast. Um, but, you know, if your child's teacher is sending you work home, then um, you can always use them as a point of contact as well, you know, if you're unsure. Um, Absolutely. But hopefully that's helpful because we've had so many parents contact us um about the terminology that that is on um worksheets and resources and um yeah we just wanted to um try and explain it best we could for you i think they need to also not be so hard on themselves i think if anything can come out of this it's that what we're actually asking of children is really difficult and maybe we we don't need to be giving them all this terminology at such a young age and it definitely wasn't around when we were in at school and it's not done us any harm so hopefully we can see that yes they're doing it right now but let's see if we can help them along the way yeah well they say that there's going to be lots of changes um in the way we teach and learn um from this period of time so that could be just one of them but not homeschooling for me please do you know it's really interesting because um i kind of thought Oh, would I want to homeschool? The answer's no. Um, <laughs> but I have seen quite a few people um, in certain groups I'm in, um, especially, and in business groups as well, which confuses me because you'd think they'd want more time, um, saying that they're not going to send the children back. So um, nice. I, I can also see how, how it's also a special time as well, and some people really might want to kind of grasp onto that, whereas I, I just need the time. <laughs> I need the dive back. <laughs> I think we've enjoyed it. We're we're a very yeah. much root, routine family. 
So we have continued to work through Easter. Um, you know, some people work through routine, some people don't. Our family tend to need it. We've always kind of had structure. Um, maybe if I asked my husband if he wanted to continue homeschooling, I might get a different answer. I think he's quite enjoying it. I'm not quite sure if he'd enjoy it for a full term. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do feel like I have got to know my children a little bit more because there's no yes. other... There's nothing else to to kind of do. They've got nowhere else they need to be or want to be. We did every sport going under the sun, and now all of a sudden all sports stopped, and it's just us now playing games mm-hmm. and doing yeah. filling the free time. And I do feel like I've got to know them a lot more. Yeah, and I feel like that as well. I think um, obviously my children are younger than yours, and uh, they're still developing. Um, but even in um, my eldest ability. Just, I feel like in the first week, I figured out what she could do, um, which was really interesting. I was like, oh, so that's what you can do. <laughs> and they, they do blow your mind. And they are little sponges. And whatever you do tell them, they will just soak it all in. And yeah. you'll be, you, will, you will reap the rewards just sitting with them for 20, 30 minutes in the morning or in an afternoon. And they will love that time with, the, with you as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it was really helpful to Lindsay that she's been having to explain all this terminology to her non-teaching husband. And I'm sure you'll all find that pre-work that she did beneficial too. There's lots of work that can be done with language and sentences without writing everything down, especially when Ofsted are not knocking at your kitchen door. So this is a great opportunity to develop their writing skills without doing any writing at all. Work on the sentences together and keep improving them by changing them, adding clauses, synonyms, adjectives, etc. Everything that Lindsay talked about. So our last short interview is with Betty Powderell, our year six year group manager. Now, I have to say, if I had a child in year five or six right now, I would be worrying about this terminology and what it all means. So if you are in this position, you are honestly not alone. Just because we're asking 9 to 11 year olds to know this stuff, it does not mean to say it's not complicated. Betty is going to talk to us about Upper Key Stage 2. So that's Year 5, ages 9 and 10, and Year 6, ages 10 and 11. These are the last two years of primary school before moving into secondary school for Year 7. And traditionally... Although not this year, Year 6 children will be completing the Key Stage 2 SATS test in May. So, Betty, thank you so much for joining me on the Teachers Podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So, obviously, we're doing these uh, quick, short, little mini-interviews with uh, experts in certain year groups. So, tell me a quick backstory um, of your teaching experience. Okay, so I always wanted to be a teacher, apart from a very small time when I wanted to be a dentist, which was completely random. Um, (laughs) But teaching was always really in my blood. Um, I went to Huddersfield University to do English language and creative writing. Um, And then I had a year sort of gaining experience in schools through voluntary work. Um, I spent most of my time there in year six. So that was my where I felt most comfortable and where I felt most confident and mm-hmm. um, so once I'd got a bit more experience I applied for a PGCE and a graduate teacher program so the PGCE is obviously through the university 
on the graduate teacher program is where you're based in schools and I was lucky enough to get a place on the graduate teacher program so I spent my training year in a school which was awesome I did from autumn to December in key stage one and then from January to July in key stage two again in year six so it was sort of drawing me back to it all the time in year six um, then my NQT year, I got a job in a small village school, which were mixed classes. So I started in year three, four, and then followed those kids through to four, five, six, and then had them again in five, six, and was just teaching years five, six, until the school grew. And then I ended up just teaching a pure year six class on their own until I left. Um, I was mass coordinator for the last few years at school, and I've also been a writing moderator for the local authority. So I've got quite a wide breadth of yeah. experience you've got a wealth though. of experience yeah and yeah. I remember um having a conversation with you way back when when you know you told me that you'd kind of done so many year groups in in one um in one class in one, and I, yeah. was, <laughs> I was amazed at that um, it was so, quite a balancing act <laughs> yeah so so much year six experience so that's why you're here to talk for us about upper key stage two now yes. this this podcast really is aimed at parents because at the end of the day you know, teachers are still trying to deliver lessons, but yeah. kind of the um, the end person in the classroom, as it were, are parents right now. And, um, you know, one thing that we feel at Classroom Secrets that people have said that they need help with is obviously the, um, the terminology that we're using. So that's what yeah. we're going to try and get through in this. Yeah, fantastic. In this time. So I'm going to fire some words at you. And okay. I want you to explain in the most simple terms you can what on earth they are. are okay, ready? I'm ready. Okay, right, translate. So a translation is a mathematical term and what it is is when you move a shape, so you keep the shape as it is and you move it left or right or up or down, the shape doesn't rotate, it doesn't flip or anything, it stays as it is, it's just simply moving like I say, either left or right, up or down, until it's translated into another position. Already, I, f I feel like I wish you were my teacher because um, <laughs> the thing is, especially because I went around supply a lot and I did secondary before, you forget all these terms. And, yeah, you know, you really I feel do. in that situation now because obviously Hattie's three and I'm like, oh, you've reminded me what it is. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you. But I think most people know what decimals are, but you just want to. Um, tell us what decimals are because you might be able to give some more insights. Yeah, of course. So a decimal is just basically an extension on um, the place value, like your ones or units, tens and hundreds. It just extends from beyond the decimal point. Um, so you've got your ones or your units, which is followed by a decimal point, and then you've got tenths, which is obviously a tenth of a whole one, and then a hundredth, which is hundredth of a whole one and a thousandth which is a thousandth of a whole one and so a decimal number is just a number which has decimal places which is numbers that occur after the decimal point. And I think that's really interesting what you said there so your ones are your units so obviously when we were at school and when parents were at school we called them units and yeah. but now they call them ones um, yeah. <laughs> just, just, you know she said units to help you um, but call them ones because otherwise the children won't have a clue what you're talking about. Um, Definitely. And then so the teachers that... will be like, no, it's wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, I grew up with them as units. Um, I taught with them as ones. So I think ones is the best way 
to teach a child if you're teaching them at home um but just so you know that ones is the same as units yes yes um okay percentages so percentages it comes from the word percent which means parts of a hundred um so a percentage is just basically how many parts out of a hundred so 25 percent, for example is 25 parts out of a hundred obviously you might want to be looking at numbers which are more than a hundred but you just break those down into hundreds so for example if 10 percent of 500 people have an ice cream that's 10 parts out of the hundred so it would be 10 times the 500 so it's 50 people out of the 500 which would have ice cream Wow, thank you. I feel like this is like a mastermind quiz for you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, improper fractions. So improper fractions, a fraction is basically made up of a number above a line and a number below a line. So the number above the line is called the numerator and the number below the line is called the denominator. And an improper fraction is a fraction that's greater than one. So the numerator, which is the top number, is greater than the number on the bottom, which is the denominator. So for example, you might have four thirds. Um, so three thirds would make up the whole one and then you'd have one more third, which would be the four thirds. Super, thank you. Um, okay, mixed numbers with fractions. Oh, that, yeah, that kind of links into um, what I was just saying about the four thirds. So four thirds written in that way as a fraction is an improper fraction. But if you wanted to form the whole as well as having the fraction, um, like say the three thirds would make up the one whole and then you'd have one third left over. So the mixed number equivalent of four thirds as an improper fraction would be one and one third. Right, okay, thank you. Right, okay. So we're on to, so obviously that was the maths. Now we're on to the English. So yes. what's the subject like as in a sentence? So if you're writing a simple sentence, um, for example, the boy kicked the ball, the subject is um, the thing that is doing the action. Um, so in that sentence, the action is kicked. So the verb is kicked. Um, the person doing the action is the boy. So the boy would be the subject of that sentence. Thank you. And so in, in sentences again, what about the object? So the object is the thing that is receiving the action. So again, I'll use the same example. The boy kicked the ball. Um, the ball is receiving the action of the kick. So that would be the object of the sentence. And I suppose there can be like quite tricky versions of this as well. Oh, definitely. This is the most, the most stripped down version, if you will, of it. So, so is, there any, is there ever a scenario where a person could actually be the object if they were, the, if they were what was receiving it? So it would be something like... Um, Mary hit Jacob or something like on the arm. So Mary hit Jacob on the arm. So the verb would be hit and Jacob would be the recipient of that action. So a person can be the object of the sentence. Which makes it very confusing, I think. Which makes it very, very confusing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Right. What about passive verb? When we talk about a sentence that written in either the active uh, voice or the passive voice so the sentence that I just gave you an example of, of the boy kicked the ball uh, that's structured in um, the order of subject verb object but when we're talking about the passive voice it because the subject of the sentence is then receiving rather than doing the action so instead of the boy kicked the ball the ball that 
then starts the sentence. So the ball was kicked by the boy. So the preposition by tells us who or what did the action. Wow. Just listening to you, I'm just like, why are you six learning this? <laughs> Since the introduction of the 2014 curriculum, the amount of terminology that they have to know and sort of hold in the head as well as being able to use and apply is just absolutely, it, it's really, really crazy. Um, I remember having to swat up loads before having to teach it because I didn't cover some of this well, at least I can't remember covering it until I did my English language degree. And I think we're expecting children to be able to know, A, what they are, B, use them, and then C, use them for effect. And it's, it's, it's quite a... It's, it's, it's difficult. Because, them. You know, you're saying you didn't learn it till your English language degree. Well, I didn't do a degree in English language. I, I never did this. Yeah. And so I imagine a lot of parents out there, I mean, obviously we're giving you a whistle stop tour really um kind of as an insight into what these um things are yeah and um i guess you know if you need if you need more help especially if it's been sent by your um child's school then then the teacher is is a good kind of resource to use as well just for a little bit more clarification on that absolutely um, and i think the more time like certainly my experience was that the more time that I spent in year six teaching the same things the more confident I got with it but kids only get one year in year six and one year in year five and yes they're building on their skills all the way through key stage two um but there's a lot to learn and yeah. I think we're expecting a lot of them yeah yeah and and especially if they're at home now as well um, and they're not going to be taking the SATs and yeah. they're going to have expectations of what maybe they should know. Um, I mean, I know that we're obviously all in the same situation, um, yeah. but some of these these um, things they are going to find difficult, aren't they? Because they're not, you know, having direct teaching as such. They are. And I think everyone has to be sort of mindful of the fact that, yes, they're not in that school environment and you might have like feel a lot of pressure to to fill the gaps but at the end of the day you've got to remember that you know parents aren't teachers whatever you do with them is going to be valuable yeah. for them in some way and do use the resources that are available to you use the Facebook groups use your child's teacher if they're available there's a lot of support out there um, for you to access um, but don't be too hard on yourself because it takes teachers a lot of time to get their head around these things so you know yeah it's it's bound to be really daunting I can imagine as a parent especially yeah. if you're not from an education background suddenly being faced with all this terminology and and, and this is it and I think even earlier as teachers who have got children in in year six are panicking about this because they don't know this either um, yeah <laughs> it's not it's not something that all teachers know and other people don't is it it's it's Definitely. actually just what year six teachers know or year five teachers know <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah you sort of become a specialist in your year group like if you'd have asked me to come and talk to you about EYFS terminology that would have been a completely different conversation so I'm glad you've got a different expert coming on to yeah. talk about EYFS terminology exactly and you know even I've got um, a daughter in EYFS but oh my word I'm looking at <laughs> that one and what I can learn because <laughs> not my 
forte at all. Um, all right, okay, let's jump back then. So personal yeah. pronoun. So a personal pronoun, a pronoun is basically a word that replaces the noun in a sentence. So a noun is a person, a place or a thing, um, or it can be a feeling as well, like love or anger and things like that. Um, but if a personal pronoun um, replaces um, like the people in a sentence, so instead of saying Claire, I might say you, or I might right. say she, depending on what context I was using it in the sentence. Um, so that again translates to like I, me, he, him, she, her. Um, so they are personal pronouns that would replace um, the noun within the sentence. Thank you. Subjunctive form, what's that? So the subjunctive was introduced by Michael Gove um, when he was education secretary. And it's been the bone of contention because um, it's used in sort of ultra formal language and writing, but it's not really that relevant to the children in my opinion. Um, but basically what it is, is it's a ver it's the form of the verb that's used um, to express like hopes or wishes. Um, so for example, I might say, oh, I wish I were able to come to your party. So the subjunctive form there is that using the were instead of was. So you typically you might say, oh, I wish I was able to come just in your, if you were just speaking it. But because of the subjunctive there and you're expressing a wish or a hope or a desire, you have to substitute that was and use were instead. So it becomes, I wish I were able to come to your party. So the subjunctive can also be used um, to show commands, demands or suggestions. So you might say something like, I recommend that you go to this hotel. Um, a lot of teachers, in fact, don't go into a lot of detail when teaching the subjunctive because it's usually only worth, worth one mark on the SATS papers. And sometimes it just doesn't appear at all. Um, the children do sometimes use it in their writing, but it, it, like I say, it's not my favorite thing on the English curriculum. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much about the subjunctive. It's just so you've got a bit of an idea what it is in case that terminology comes up in any home learning that you might be doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and I'm sure they'll be pleased to know that, do you know what, even teachers are slightly confused about this and uh, yep. <laughs> um, don't pay too much attention. In fact, it was actually um, on my first podcast episode, Mr. Gramasaurus himself said that, that he doesn't really, <laughs> he, doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't really spend too much time on it. So we've heard it from him. Um, yep. So the present um, perfect form tense. So the present perfect form is just um, a form of the verb. Um, so it describes actions that continued for a period of time, but have a known end. Um, so it's formed from using the verb to have in the present tense, which is has. And then the main verb comes as a past tense. So for example, she has cooked tea. So the action of the cooking was continuous for a while, but once she'd made the tea and finished it, that was the end point. So the perfect, the present perfect form of the verb in that would be has cooked. You might say, he has played with his little brother. So that would be, for example, has played, he spent some time playing with his little brother, 
but that has an end point. So that's what the present perfect form is used for. Thank you. I feel like I've, I've finally found out what that is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about um, the present progressive tense? So whereas the present perfect was a continuous action that had a known ending, the present progressive is something that is continuous. So for example, you might say something like, I am writing an essay or I am writing a story. And that would be, there is no known end point to that in that it, it is just you carrying out that action and you, there isn't a specified end point. So I'm writing, it's formed with the verb to be. So am, mm. are, or is, and then you have your main verb writing, which is the ing form of the verb. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure some parents are probably like me now thinking, I don't want to know this, to be honest. <laughs> no, it's just things that might come up and might, it, it's just a little tiny insight. I mean, we teach whole lessons and series of lessons on these. Um, so this is really just a tiny little snapshot into it. So please, if you need any more support, do get in touch with um, your child's teacher or teachers that you might know or like I say groups on Facebook because they really are really valuable sources of information at this time. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, this is just if it comes up in, in a piece of homework um, yeah. or home learning um, that your child's doing. Um, right, an idiom then. So an idiom is a word or phrase that means something completely different from the words it's made up of. So for example, a couch potato, it, it's not necessarily, you wouldn't have just a potato sat on a sofa. It, do, it doesn't mean that it's just a word that is used in really sort of informal language um, that is just made up of, um, it's, it's a, an easily recognizable Thing, like raining cats and dogs for example yeah it's, it's not like, literally like a, cats and dogs but everybody knows what you mean when you say it yeah I suppose it's like a saying isn't it that we use that yeah doesn't actually mean exactly what it says you can't take it literally yeah that's exactly what it is yeah okay oh and you won yay <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's okay I use them all the time because I'm from Yorkshire um, and that's it it just becomes part of your dialect and you don't realize you're doing it sometimes until someone goes what was that exactly was that? generally when um, we see ed's family abroad and they're like what are you talking about i'm like oh no <laughs> last one then yep acronym so an acronym is um a shortening of a word where the first letters from the words in the phrase are used for example diy um, you've taken the first letters of do it yourself to form the acronym DIY. It's the same as things like RSPCA. Um, so is that on the year six bag test then? It's not necessarily on the year six bag test. No, it's just something that might pop up. Um, it's just, we, I know I've taught what it is before, but it's not something that they'd be tested on necessarily. Yeah, I, but I do actually remember covering this um, in year six, I think, when I were in primary school. That was yeah. one thing we did learn. Um, <laughs> but we didn't learn what a verb actually was. So. Uh, no. Uh, but anyway, but thank you so much. 
This You're very really welcome. Useful. Thank you for having me. I hope it has been a little bit useful. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was the upper key stage two slot. Um, so that's year five and year six. Um, it's not everything, but it's quite a few of the most difficult terminology um, sort of things that we thought that we could pull out for you that might be yeah. useful. Um, so thank you, Betty. No, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. So obviously with four short interviews, it's been a little bit different, but hopefully it's been useful. If you're a teacher, I hope you learned something about the other year groups that perhaps you were not as clear on. And if you're a parent, hopefully you'll learn something new that will help you in your new homeschool journey that we've all been thrown into, mostly against our will. And as I said before, let me know if you'd find it useful to have short videos on each one of these terms where you can see what you are hearing as well. Schools across the world have closed and it's a great time to get into listening to podcasts. So don't forget to listen to the previous episodes because there is so much to learn. You will find everything that we talked about in the show notes. And if this is the first time that you're listening to the teacher's podcast, then please remember to subscribe. And do explore the other episodes as I've had some truly inspirational and knowledgeable guests. It's a really great time to tap into some free CPD. And if you want to request that someone is on the podcast, then you can let us know in our Facebook group called The Teacher's Podcast Community. I'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. See you next week. Thank you for listening. The Teacher's Podcast is in association with Classroom Secrets provider of high quality and affordable teaching resources that children love and teachers trust. To find out more, visit classroomsecrets.co.uk.